Hello, you are so welcome to the Black and Irish podcast. This time on the podcast, we're going to be talking about systemic racism. Racism doesn't exist because some people just call you a name. No, racism is backed by power. It's power. It, it takes power. If racism was just an ideology, it's just an idea. By now, with all of the protests and everything that people have done, it would have been kicked out. With the level of education people have done, racism would have been gone by now. I'm Leon Dia. And I'm Femi Bankole. I'm joined by two fantastic guests, Dr. Eben Joseph, who is a Nigerian-Irish author, lecturer and consultant. And she's the founder and module coordinator of the first Black Studies module in Ireland at UCD. And also joined by Claudia Huru, inclusion, race and equality consultant with over 20 years experience on race relations. You know what, Leon, I might go to you first um, before we go to the experts. What, in your opinion, is, is systemic racism? It's really difficult to put your finger on it, exactly what it is, because it, it comes in many shapes and forms. It's a bit tougher to point out than the likes of overt racism, which is, you know, name calling and slurs or covert racism, which is more subtle forms of racism. To me, systemic racism is policies and practices that are in place that hold racist undertones and put up barriers to ethnic minorities and other, other minorities from accessing services or jobs or, or, or different things like that. I feel like I've been put on the spot a little bit, seeing as we've got two, you know, really esteemed experts on, on the call. So I'd like to divert to them and, and ask them, you know, what they believe systemic racism to be and what forms it, it, it takes in Ireland. So, Claudia, I might go to you first. To you, what is systemic racism in Ireland? Well, systemic racism, which is also uh, sometimes referred to as structural racism, is one of maybe four different dimensions or ways of understanding racism. So some of the others are some of you know similar to what you've mentioned, Leon, the individual dimension. And I think that's the one that's most common because that's the overt racism the historical dimension, and the institutional dimension. But when we're talking about systemic racism, really, as you've rightly said, Leon, these are your policies and practices, your processes that exist, and the processes and what they lead to, things like underrepresentation in society, but not deeper than underrepresentation, unequal distribution of wealth, of opportunities, unequal access to uh, a, a similar standard of living as members of the majority population. It's that kind of thing. It's, it's the systems that are in place that make it very difficult for anybody who is different or anybody who is a minority to enjoy the same standard of living. That's what I would say as a general definition. Dr. Joseph, in terms of your understanding, you've done a lot of work in, in this field and would know it a lot better than, than most. I think that, you know, again, you know, just and you've both addressed some of the key things when we begin to look at this whole idea of systemic racism. It is focusing on the policies and practices within our institutions, 
one of the things that I think that is really important for us to remember about racism that, you know, there is behavioral racism, you know, and I think maybe, you know, sometimes we describe that as the individual racism. That's behavioral is what people do. And those ones can be changed in different ways. But the major problem is when we come to this one you're talking about, which is the systemic one, which are the policies and practices, you know, within our institutions, within our organizations, whether they are there intentionally or not. You see, because most times people will look at it and we say, oh, it was not intended. The fact is that even if it wasn't intended to cause harm, the fact is that those policies operate in such a way that they produce outcomes. And the outcomes that they produce disproportionately favor one group, one racial group. So they, they, they favor one group and disadvantage other groups. Do you know that in Ireland, I mean, like when we look at in Ireland, from my work, we begin to see that if you're a person of uh, migrant descent in Ireland, you know, like if you're a black person in Ireland, Pre-COVID-19, when our unemployment rate in Ireland was about 5.4%, the best that we've had, you know, in, in how many years? In the last 10 years, Black people's unemployment rate in Ireland was 43 to 63%, five to eight times. Now, questions we begin to ask ourselves is either there is something wrong with these people or there is something within our system that makes it, you know, that they are not able to assess the labor market. Do you know that if any other group, if any other group had, you know, this level of high unemployment, there would be a national crisis. Don't get me wrong. These are not just people who um, don't have the right to work. They have the right to work. Our census statistics shows us that, you know, black people in Ireland have, you know, they've assessed education. They have a high level of education. I'm the chairperson of the African Scholars Association. And I mean, you'll be amazed how many people have PhDs, you know, in the African Scholars Association. Yet the unemployment rate in that group, despite their level of education, is extremely high. So we look at systems that make all of those things happen. it's really important to um, consider the historical dimension is, first of all, one thing that you will always hear when you talk about, when we, when we listen to people talk about or nearly defend in some ways some of the policies that perpetuate systemic racism, is you will always hear that these are historical policies. These are things that always existed. These are things that existed before we had mass immigration in Ireland. So it's not our fault. So there's this fallback on history in terms of how people are, um, I, I, I want to say, defending themselves against, uh, you know, a, a systemic and structural racism. But another thing that's really important to consider is when we're looking at regional or country context. You know, you cannot compare Ireland's history with anyone else's in Europe uh, or, or certainly the rest of the world. There may be some similarities, but really understanding historically how were things dealt with in Ireland. My granddad, when I was growing up, uh, who, who was from Belfast originally, used to say something really interesting. 
he used to say, and I was a child, I did not understand this, but he used to say, Irish people, we put a lot of things behind walls and institutions. And that is historically how we dealt. We put things behind walls and institutions. And it's interesting because you, you might ask yourself, why am I saying this? Well, look at some of the systemic uh, issues that we're dealing with in society today. We're dealing with direct provision. What have we done there? We have put people in institutions. This year alone, we have heard some atrocious things come out about mother and baby homes. How did we deal? We put things in institutions and behind walls. We did not confront. We did not deal. And now what you're having is, is people now in Ireland who are fed up of that and they want to deal, they want to heal, they're looking for the truth, but the systems which operate are not catching up with this yearning that people have to want to address these issues. So I think that's why it's really important to understand some of these other, um, what I would call contributing dimensions, especially when you're talking about something as big and as heavy as racism. It's, there's so many different factors to look at. Sometimes I want to shake my colleagues and say, can you see what I'm saying? Because sometimes people want to say, you know, even stop or slow down. I say, but can you see what I'm saying? And I have to constantly ask myself, if not me, then who? You know, like, you know, who's going to do this? Because, you know, and that's the sometimes, sometimes frustration that I feel, you know, like particularly after all of the Black Lives Matter protest of 2020, you know, I had so much hope. I had so much hope and my hope was dashed. I had so much hope that there was, you know, a willingness, you know, to engage, to make changes, to see things happen. And right now we are stuck in that conversation. Is there race or is there racism? Are we racist or are we not racist? And we are having that conversation. We're caught again in that whole conversation. You know, that is a challenge. So you ask who should do something about it. Every one of us. But when we look at the way the system is, the higher you go, the whiter it becomes in Ireland. So that is the first thing you need to understand. The higher you go, the whiter it becomes. The second thing is that when we look at racism, racism doesn't exist because, you know, some people just call you a name. No, racism is backed by power. It's power. It, it takes power. If racism was just an ideology, it's just an idea. By now, with all of the protests and everything that people have done, it would have been kicked out with the level of education people have done. Racism would have been gone by now. So racism is not just there as a, an idea. It is there because it is backed by power. So when these racist ideas come up, we have racist ideas. What our system then does is that it creates a policy to protect that racist idea. For the change to happen, it has to happen in the seat of power. It is those who are within power. We can agitate. We can agitate. We can call it out. We can name it. We can ask people to unsilence themselves and speak up. So that's what we're doing. We're naming it. We're making it. We're putting it in people's faces so they can see it and know that this is a reality. We're not just talking. I've done my research so that I can be able to say that this is not just anecdotal evidence. This is not just people I talk with, but that there is research to back it up. All of this is happening at the seat of power. So that change must happen at the seat of power. If there is no buy-in from the top, 
I go into a lot of big companies and I speak to them. So if there is no buy-in from top management, that change is not going to happen. If there is no buy-in from our government, that change is not going to happen. So whether it's a department of education or whether it's a department of jobs, if there's no buy-in from there, because it's about a power structure, racism is maintained by power. For us to unseat it, for us to make that change, people within the spaces of power can do something. So two things that can happen. Those of us who are maybe on the ground, you know, we can agitate. We can, you know, again, I speak to everyone. I say, within your circle, you have a circle of influence. So for example, you're working on a team, you know, so within your circle there, on your team, you can make that small change. Whether you're HR manager, you can make that small change within your team. So little, little, you know, little, little pockets of actions, but it begins to make a change. While we talk about things being systemic, don't forget the system doesn't run itself. The systems are run by human beings. You and I, we run the system. In the labor market, there are gatekeepers who are gatekeeping. And so people need to begin to ask themselves, am I a gatekeeper in this organization? Who am I keeping out? Who am I allowing in? You can make a change on that level. I say to organizations, you want to make a change, you want to sit down and ask yourself, what are the policies that we have in place that is favoring some groups and also limiting some groups? If you cannot make a policy change, nothing is going to happen. So for me, those are the two key places. As individuals, you can make a change within your circle of influence. And as organizations, as institutions, you can look at the policies and the laws that you have put in place and make the changes from those points. We are very complex and ever-evolving human beings. So when you talk of a uniform approach, my concern straight away comes in because it takes it takes a living approach. It takes an ever-evolving approach. And it takes an approach that covers all the different facets. So, for example, if we think about, you know, as Dr. Ebun has absolutely correctly said, people in power. There are two ways of looking at this. Decision makers and then everybody else. The decision makers are these people in power. But don't forget your own power as society, as taxpayers, as voters, how important it, a role you have in society. And not only important a role you have, but actually the responsibility you have and the onus that you have. Look at even what has happened since the murder of George Floyd. And I would echo exactly what Dr. Ebrun has said. I, I was never busier than last year. 2020, my phone was hopping. People, doors that I was knocking down to talk about racism in previous years that were previously closed to me were suddenly bombarding me with phone calls because they wanted to talk about racism. And I thought, wow, this is amazing. Unfortunately, it's taken someone to be murdered, uh, but this is amazing that we are finally having these conversations. And what has happened now? The, the momentum has died down. It seems to come in ebbs and flows, and now we're in a quiet period. Now, I understand that people have a lot else to be worrying about right now, like a global pandemic. But these issues are still lived experiences for many of us. And so for us, it, we are not bored. We, are not, we, we haven't forgotten about it. You mentioned earlier on, and this is something that I always find so odd. You know, you mentioned in your intro of me, which is absolutely correct, that I've been doing this work for over 20 years. Do you know that's because I started it as a teenager? I started it as a teenager in my secondary school. 
So if I count from the very first workshop I gave up to today, I'm still talking about this stuff. And back then I was a kid. I didn't know I was talking about anti-racism or intercultural integration or whatever. I went to my principal and I told her that I'm the only one who looks like me. And before my sister joins, I'd very much like to talk to my year group to explain a couple of things to them. And people don't realize that for me, that is my daily lived experience. It has been for my parents. It has been for my siblings. And yet I'm still talking about it now. And what are we actually doing? And the reason I'm saying this, and I'm, I'm putting the onus on to everybody. It's not enough anymore to, to enjoy the, the multicultural days and to like jollof rice and listen to Burner Boy. But are you actually giving me the job at the end of the day? Are, are you actually seeing me as an equal in society? Are you doing something to ensure that I'm enjoying I mean, it's not anybody else's responsibility to ensure I'm enjoying a, a, a particular quality or standard of life, but it certainly is, as somebody living with me in society, your responsibility to ensure that systems are fair. And again, when we talk about decision makers, are you in your school uh, parent-teacher association for your kids' school? Have you asked them whether they have an anti-racism policy? Not a bullying policy, but an anti-racism policy. Have you encouraged your school to maybe sign up to something like the Yellow Flag Program? I mean, people have more power than they realize in this society. And so when we talk about an approach, to me, honestly, it's not a uniform approach. Because yes, we are hoping that we will have a national action plan against racism. And I think that is very important. As Dr. Ebuna said, that, that is stuff that's from coming from the top down and it's definitely necessary. Yes, we are hoping that we have hate crime legislation because it's absolutely necessary. And those are big things that we need as a society to function. Yes, but we all have power and we all have responsibility wherever we are to make some kind of changes. and and yourself have have both recently moved to new organizations and I moved to Slack recently and I'm working as a a recruiter there. I don't know about you, but in in my onboarding, the policies that they give me around diversity and inclusion and, you know, the training that I'm getting is absolutely fantastic. We've, I suppose, talked about how we can unwind these policies and practices, but what policies and practices should we be putting in, you know, around like the likes of diversity and belonging and inclusion and, and, and stuff like that? Um, How do we make our spaces more diverse and more inclusive as well? The way I look at diversity and inclusion is I look at diversity with a small d and inclusion with a capital I. So diversity is what we have. We have diversity in Ireland. It's wonderful, like I've mentioned, and we enjoy it. and, 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 And members of the majority population like to enjoy it when it suits them. What we want is inclusion, however. And I think there needs to be maybe a little bit of a shift in how we're looking at it to to further embed that. And what does inclusion actually mean? 
like you, Leon, I've uh, been onboarding recently uh, for a global tech company and the training has been phenomenal. And I think before we came on air, I was sharing a little bit of this. It, it's nearly been like a culture shock for me. But one thing I'm conscious of is that this training, you know, this is a global uh, organization and the training is very influenced by, you know, all the global stakeholders. And it's it's been great. It's been fantastic. And certainly it's been rolled out to a lot of Dublin uh, employees and Irish based employees. But I couldn't help but feel, wow, I mean, th- this is wonderful. How do we how do we roll this out elsewhere? But how do we make it um more applicable and relevant to to Irish companies, you know, and not just big companies, but right down to, you know, smaller companies that have one or two staff. How do we make this, embed this to be part of culture and not not just this thing that we do because it's an exercise to do? There's only 1.4% of us who are Black in Ireland. So our voice cannot be strong enough. Mm-hmm. So unless we actually have support, allies and sponsors, nothing is going to work. So that is the key thing that, you know, there's only 1.4%. And then we're talking about the unemployment rate. More than half of those people, not that they don't want to work, that they can't find work. Key thing that we want to begin to understand about diversity and inclusion. The first thing I would say is that when we bring people into a space that we have not made inclusive, we will cause them harm. Because when they come in there, they will be harmed by the experiences that they have. And I write about that in my book. My research shows that the experiences that people have in the labor market, it reconstructs their identities it actually begins to change who they are. It changes who they are becoming. It changes how they communicate, how they perform, how they act, how they be. It actually changes their identities. So it is really, really key. When we say that racism is a pandemic, it is a pandemic. It's not just, you know, something, oh, they called me a bad name. No, it actually changes people's experiences. So really important that we make our workspaces inclusive. One of the exercises I do when I'm running my anti-racism training is I always ask people, if you were going on a jog and you saw that there was a fire in a building, what would you do? Everybody, everybody, even the CEO who says, oh, I'm, I'm late for my meeting, he would stop and call 999 and call the, you know, call the ambulance and call the fire brigade. And he won't say, oh, there's only a black person in the house. I won't call. Oh, it's only a traveler in the house. I won't call. No, they they won't even want to know who is in the house. They just see a fire coming out from a building. The instinct is to call. Now, what I'm saying is that every organization, so everywhere I'm going and ask, I'm asking people that your organization should have a 999 for anti-racism. It means that How do people within organizations, how do they um, recognize racism? Because when we see a fire, when we see the danger, we recognize it. We know the actions. So there are specific actions. There is a number to call. We know what to do. Does every organization have something in place, a structure in place that shows them when they see racism, this is what it is. This is what to do. Everybody in the organization must know what to do. That is number one. The second thing I want to talk about is the whistleblowers. And that's why we don't report. Some of us are suffering the punishment or the, the penalty for speaking out against race, against racism. In an organization, you find that when people experience racism and they call it out, the onus is on them to prove that they have experienced racism. 
And so what happens, you're blacklisted or whitelisted or greenlisted or whatever kind of listing we want to call it. It's like we, we talk about whistleblower you know, protection. Is there a protection for whistleblowers of anti-racism? We need to begin to look at things like that. I think maybe the last thing I would draw attention to is just how we use data. And I love data, and I think that it's really important that we have data. Most organizations refuse to collect disaggregated data. And so that's why in Ireland, we can't say, oh, this is the problem. So we don't have data. I mean, sometimes I'm just envious of the UK or the US because once they name a problem today, within 24 hours, there is access to data. We can use air freedom of information to get that data. They do the analysis. You can actually show those who are marginalized and those who are being left behind. When you use this umbrella and you say migrants, then people who are marginalized are left behind. You know, so disaggregated data, we don't collect that. One of the challenges I found is that most organizations, they will carry out surveys. You carry out survey. I say, uh, you do know that 80 to 90% of your staff are white. And you are carrying out a survey asking them if your organization is inclusive. What are they going to say? So then you get a result back that said 85% say it is inclusive. I'm like, yeah. 85% of your 90% staff have told you that you are inclusive. So the 10% or the 5% or the 1% who are minority group there, their voice is lost. To create that inclusiveness, we must be deliberate. It must be deliberately done. We must ask people, what does an inclusive space look like for you? What will help you to feel included? You know, we must begin to do those pieces of work. I think, you know, there are Practical things on ground, any organization that is serious about doing that work must begin to look at all of these key elements in, in making those changes. What are the immediate next steps in which, you know, the everyday person can do to help combat systemic racism? Just so briefly, to each of you, I'm going to go to come to you, Claudia, first. What are the immediate next steps to anyone listening to this that they can take? Okay, well, the first thing I would say is don't minimize it anymore when you hear it. When you hear people talk about it, don't minimize it. Even if, it, if it's because you're trying, you feel like you're trying to minimize their pain. The number of times that I have spoken to my white Irish friends about experiences I've had and they would try it as, and, and brush it off very often because they care for me and they're trying to minimize my pain. And, you know, while I appreciate that, what that does is it actually makes me feel like I'm not going to be believed. And as Dr. Ebun said earlier, then there's this, there's this massive onus on me to prove that it happened. So let's stop minimizing. Let's start believing people when they tell us these things are happening. Also, let's start understanding racism as something, you know, a system of oppression rather than one thing. We always focus on this overt racism of being called a name. But let's start to understand that it is everything from bias right across to death. So when you're talking about bias and what that actually means day to day, you know, I had an experience recently where I was um, um, trying to access healthcare services and by when, when the person, when the healthcare professional called me, they um, saw my surname and immediately had, um, I would say, an opinion of how they could communicate with me. And the minute I started speaking to them, 
they were taken aback, or very obviously, and so, you know, initially didn't want to answer my questions as if I didn't have a right to know about my own healthcare. And the minute that you know it, it, it became less about my name and more about actually me and, and answering me and seeing me as a whole person, the dynamic of that conversation changed. So, you know, it's, it's start to, to address your own biases, yes, but believe people. Also, report. Um, you know, we've talked about data. I, I'm also a lover of data. It's very hard to do anything if we don't have the data, and underreporting is a massive issue. Organizations like INA have actually been around since 1997. This is not new. You know, they have been doing this work. The iReport platform is there. You can report to the guards. Report, because that we need that data in order to implement some of these changes to policies and, and, and systemic racism that we've been talking about today. So, you know, this is not, this goes further than being an ally. This goes further than being a supporter. It's about starting to see the people around you in your communities as human beings who deserve a fair chance, who deserve to enjoy life in its, in its fullness, just as you do, regardless of how they look, what their religious beliefs are, what their sexuality is, what their name is, all of that. When you see it, call it out. Silence is violence. Anywhere you see it, you know, make sure you're safe. But when you see it, little microaggressions during your team meetings, when you see it during, st let's start from there. Sometimes we're looking, trying to change the world. I'm like, change your team meetings alone. Change your team, change your group, change what is happening there. Let it start from there. When you see it, call it out. You know, silence is a violence because racism, when people experience racism, it is a shaming experience. What I mean by that is that when people experience racism, it actually makes them feel shame. They inter you know, that shame stays with them. But when you call it out, you know, you redirect the shame away from them. You redirect it away from them to whoever has performed that racist act. So really important that when we see it, let us call it out. Don't forget you can subscribe to the Black and Irish podcast at rte.ie forward slash podcast or wherever you get your podcast. Chat to you soon.